Dr. Amy Hayek was born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She got her bachelor's degree in English and a master's degree in technical writing from Iowa State University in 1986 and 1987. She spent some time teaching English at the university level while also working with horses before earning her DVM from Colorado State University in 1998. After graduation, she started working in clinical practice and began to study holistic medicine. She was certified by Chi University in acupuncture in 2000, followed by certification in animal chiropractic after attending the Healing Oasis for both the basic program and other advanced coursework. In 2012, she partnered with Dr. Bill Ormston to start their animal chiropractic program, Animal Chiropractic Education Source, or ACES. Theirs was the first chiropractic program to employ extensive online coursework to make the program more convenient for working students. ACES also offers a complete catalog of approved animal chiropractic continuing education online. She and Dr. Ormston also maintain a clinical animal chiropractic practice in Meridian, Texas. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Amy Hayek as we discuss her education, founding of the ACES School, how ACES embraces a chiropractic philosophy of health, and her business coaching services for animal chiropractors. Dr. Hayek, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Dr. Sibula, for having me. I appreciate, I'm just honored to be here. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Did um, was being a veterinarian something you knew that you wanted to do from a young age, or when did that when did that come about? Um, well, it was kind of the default after my parents told me I could not be a horse trainer for my career because they just didn't think that would be lucrative enough. <laughs> Little did they know. Yeah. <laughs> did you have horses when you were young? Um, I did. So, uh, but you know, just the borrowed neighbor's horse, that kind of thing. Yeah. Nothing fancy. Yeah. Um, so off to Iowa state then, and you got mm -hmm. your, your bachelor's degree in English. I got a bachelor's and a master's in yeah. English. Yeah. yeah. So was the idea still at that time, like vet school was still on the horizon? Well, I started out pre-vet. Uh-huh. And I think I was like a lot of, a lot of our veterinarians, they, um, you know, you go in with that, it's really hard and I can't get into vet school and it's going to be a tough battle. And, and it was quite a while ago. So there weren't as many women in veterinary medicine at the time. And, and I, that's the message I was hearing is you'll never get into vet school if blah, blah, blah. And so I did kind of an about face. I think it was probably my, between my sophomore and junior undergrad years and said, fine, I'll go be an English major because that's really easy. And, and yeah. And you ended up getting a master's in uh, technical writing, yeah? Yes. Then after after you completed your master's, what happened next? Um, so I went off to teach college English for about seven years. And then and I ended up in Florida um, because I taught college English for a little while and then sort of went off on that, I'm going to go play with horses and be somebody's groom and do fun horse things. And that's, that's how I ended up in Florida. Ah. And, um, and then 
while I was in Florida, I realized if I was ever going to go to vet school, I should probably do something about it. So I, I started teaching again, and then I applied for vet school. And it was kind of a whim, thinking this will be an exercise in filling out the application. Yeah. And um, I got in, which I didn't really expect. So that was that story. How um, So you were living and working in Florida. How many schools did you apply to? One. <laughs> the one you got in. I, I applied to Colorado State. Yeah. Mostly because I thought Colorado would be a cool place to live. A lot different than Cedar Rapids or Florida. Um, oh, yeah, both. Where were you living when you were teaching? What, were you living in Iowa? Um, well, I taught in Iowa for a while, and then um, I ended up in Florida with some hunter-jumper people. And so I was in West Palm Beach, and then I moved to Miami, where I taught for a couple of years. I taught at uh, Miami International and Florida International. What is it? My, my University of Miami and Florida International University for a few years. How did the weather agree with you? I liked it. Um, teaching English was fun because I was an adjunct professor, so I had no other responsibilities. So I would go in and teach the early morning classes, and then I would go to the beach and grade papers. It was great. <laughs> nice. So. Um, how big was your vet school class? I can't remember how how big Colorado State was at the time. We were 130 students, and nine of them were men. Wow. So so by the time I actually went to vet school, things had flipped an awful lot. Yeah. In terms of demographics. Did you enjoy vet school? Um, I enjoyed the weekends at vet school because ah. we did a lot of hiking. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And mountain climbing, those sort of things. Fort Collins is a nice place to go to school, yeah? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's changed a lot since I was there, but it was, you know, certainly um, a nice place to be because you could find downtime and you could get away from school pretty easily. Besides the outdoor stuff, were you able to uh, get, were you still riding? No, I, um, I really wasn't, I didn't do any writing when I got to vet school. I, you know, had done a lot of writing when I was in Florida, uh, race horses and polo ponies and things like that. And so, um, I just, you know, kind of moved, had moved on to other things. Yeah. Did you head into vet school thinking that you were going to do equine practice? I honestly thought maybe I would do wildlife. And I worked with USDA while I was in vet school. So I got in to do a lot of studies on different diseases. And I got to spend a summer in Yellowstone studying bison. Um, so some fun things. Um, was that the USDA where they, they, were, they had a um, station right there in, in Fort Collins? Yeah. Yeah, it was so it's it's a little bit of the White Tower kind of USDA. It was a center for epidemiology and animal health. So it's a, it it is the center where a lot of the studies come from that USDA does. Yeah. And um and they direct a lot of um a lot of actually a lot of the things that veterinarians end up 
you know, getting trained to look for and, and how to deal with them. A lot of the paperwork. Um, did you just work with wildlife part of that or did you get involved? I know there was a dairy group there. Yeah, I didn't really do much with the dairy group at all. Um, mostly I was working in the, um, well, I worked in a couple different departments, but my longest term there was with, um, the mapping. So we mapped a lot of diseases as they would come through. So anytime there was an outbreak, uh, we did all the geographic maps that went out. And that didn't stir any, uh, any interest in epidemiology then as a career? Well, um, a little bit, but so, so I actually was, uh, as I was getting near the end of my veterinary school career, I was offered, um, uh, two different positions in wildlife pathology, one in Wisconsin and one in Georgia. But at that point in my life, I felt like I needed to go make some money. And even though those would have been interesting and, and eventually would have made more money up front, um, I really couldn't stand the idea of a lot of it would have been behind a microscope. And I'm kind of an outdoors person. So that's kind, that's really what led me to being more of a large animal doctor was that I'm not really excited about staying indoors very much. Gotcha. Um, any exposure to holistic medicine then in school? When I was at Colorado State, I was exposed a little bit to acupuncture and I was kind of, I was that student, I sat in the front row and I asked a lot of questions and there were some things in veterinary school that for me, point A did not lead to point B. Um, particularly when we got talking about, probably in junior year mostly, when we were being trained mo about a lot of, you know, we'd gotten past pharmacology that everybody had pretty much failed and into the part about here's how to use all these drugs. And I continued to ask questions and I couldn't get the answer that made sense to me about the immune system cooperating with the drug schedules. And so for me, it took um, a couple of years after vet school before I really understood or could, could put together how the body worked and how things made sense. And so my first continuing education out of vet school was the acupuncture course at Chi. I thought that would help. And when I took the course, I mean, I really enjoyed it, but it also involved a lot of here, memorize these points to go along with these um, presenting symptoms which seemed to me to mirror veterinary medicine. Here's some, some uh, symptoms, memorize those to match this drug. So it didn't really answer for me the why. Why are we doing it this way? And then when I was at a, an advanced acupuncture course, 
one of the other students who was there said, you should probably take a chiropractic course. I think you'd like it. And so I looked into chiropractic and at that point, Healing Oasis had just, had only been open a couple of years. So I signed up for their course. And I think the first weekend I was there, it really helped to start to answer those questions. It even made me feel more comfortable about the acupuncture I had learned because I was beginning to understand why a needle in one place would solve a problem in another place on the body. Yeah. So as a student, you were been exposed to medical acupuncture at Colorado State. Was, what uh, prompted you to go to Chi instead of studying in Colorado, studying medical well, acupuncture? Well, the, the program wasn't there yet. Ah, okay. Um, they had, as a matter of fact, uh, the person who taught it was only one year ahead of me in vet school. So the program hadn't been set up and it did not exist at the gotcha. time I went to Chi. Okay. Uh, what sort of practice were you in after graduation? Um, I've been in a lot. Um, my first practice out was a small practice in New Mexico. I was only there six months. And then I took a break for about six months looking for the right practice. I ended up in North Carolina in a multi-doctor practice where I was the only large animal veterinarian. And that position was primarily uh, deworming and vaccines. And so I knew that that position didn't really have any place to go. I couldn't grow in that position. So a year later, I moved to South Carolina to a referral hospital where they were doing more oh, you know, more of more big bigger variety of medicine and lameness and surgery. And that's where I got to use my acupuncture some. And then it was a probably a year after that before I actually went for chiropractic training. And at that point I had left that practice because I was like many veterinarians, I was burned out. I was tired of, you know, 40 days of being on call with no real benefit to me and, you know, kind of being used up and, and burned out. So what did I do? I quit. And I didn't really care what I did after that. Yeah. And I know veterinarians these days who feel that way. Sure. Who yeah. are just so burned out, they don't want to ever go back to work. And about three days after I left that practice, clients started calling me at home, asking me to come look at their animals. I didn't have a compete or a non-compete, uh, I didn't have a contract. So, and I also didn't have any equipment, but clients didn't seem to care. So I borrowed someone's car because I didn't even have a car and went to see a few patients. And that was the building of my practice. And that's one of the things that helped me realize that that's not the way to build a practice. And that comes into play later. Um, so, um, but I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a little bit. All right. So you were, at this point, you're, you're taking the chiropractic course? I had, 
No. I started the chiropractic course not long after I started my own practice, though. Okay. Okay. And um, and I was, you know, lo and behold, here I was, a solo, mobile, equine veterinarian. And I did that for about 15 years in South Carolina. So you were doing all your on, you were still doing your own on call though. Yeah. So here I was, I was tired of doing on call with the referral practice I was in. So now I was on call 24 seven. Yeah. <laughs> How, what a great trade-off, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought too. So you just shut down and, and when you went off to, to class, because you didn't stop with just the basic course, you did some advanced training too, yeah? I did. And, and I didn't, so one of the interesting things that I found was that when I would leave for the weekend, there was another practice in town that had a, a little healthier look at veterinary medicine, especially at equine mobile medicine. And that was that um, when I would leave, they would take call for me. And we would trade clients back and forth and kept a pretty good relationship between us. So that was really helpful. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Having that cooperative relationship that was uh, kind of the exact opposite of where I was in my practice. I had a solo practice in equine and equine and was trying to get away and, you know, trying to keep but uh, I didn't have the cooperation. We didn't have a co cooperative group in my area. So that really, it sounds like that could have made a big difference for sure. Yeah. And I think from what I'm hearing um, from other and mostly female veterinarians is that some of that cooperation is coming back and becoming more, um, more regular the old model of protect my territory and protect my clients is maybe falling by the wayside a little bit. That's good to hear. So where did you go next? Great question. <laughs> so, so you'll notice that like my practice kind of built on its own and was randomly put together. Yeah. And then I realized I needed some continuing education for animal chiropractic. And I had been to a couple other classes. However, I had never been to the AVCA conference, the American Veterinary Chiropractic Association conference. It had been a couple of years since I got certified. So I decided I should register for it about three days before the, the conference. And by this time, um, I'm trying to remember. By that time, I was, I had, um, I had had a son, and he was six years old at that point, I think. And so, you know, anytime I was out of town, I had to cover my clients and find someone who could watch my son for the weekend that I trusted and be able to go. And so I registered for the conference, bought a plane ticket, and off to the AVCA I went. I had been doing some, uh, quite a bit of nutritional cons consulting for equine patients kind of everywhere. Um, I had some international 
clients. I had, I had clients all over the country. And one of them happened to be in Texas. And in my conversation with her, I had told her she needed an animal chiropractor. And at that point, I didn't know that there was a system to be able to find animal chiropractors. So I asked her if she knew of any. She gave me three names. Two of them were chiropractors who had never done animals. And one of them was Jubilee Animal Chiropractic. <laughs> and literally, I had asked her that like the day before I went to register for the ABCA yeah. conference. And so when I pulled up the ABCA website to register for the conference, I was surprised that one of the sponsors for the ABCA conference was Jubilee Animal Chiropractic. I thought, how serendipitous. I can go to the conference, see some friends, get my CE, and talk to these people about this horse that so desperately needs a good chiropractor. Yeah. So I went. And there was a table for Jubilee Animal Chiropractic in the vendor's area, but no one was sitting at it. Like the whole conference, no one was sitting <laughs> at it. <laughs> so that made it a little tough. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then, and I had been to some of the lectures and listened to different people speak and talked to different people. And finally, after one of the lectures, um, one of the people who was lecturing was Dr. Ormston, and he and I were talking, and I said, I got to go see if I can find these people before the end of this conference because I'm leaving tomorrow. And he said, I should go check my booth. <laughs> and we both walked to the same table. <laughs> uh. So, so that was how I met Dr. O. Yeah. And uh, also kind of the beginning of how I got into teaching animal chiropractic. You were, um, you did some traveling then, right? You were still working South Carolina. Then you, did you start traveling to Texas to work? Yeah. So what happened was um, Dr. O and I started traveling back and forth. I would come to Texas for a week and work with him. And he would come to South Carolina for a week and work with me. And um, then he invited me to teach at Parker where he had been teaching for several years in their animal chiropractic program. Yeah. So I taught there for a couple of years with him. So we were going back and forth monthly. And it's a little bit like going through daylight savings time every month, twice a month. It was, it was a little tough. Yeah. Um, and then in 2012, we started talking about creating an animal chiropractic program that was more flexible, that was more, that had, that had working doctors in mind. Because as I reflected back on my animal chiropractic training, you know, of those five weekends that I think started on Wednesday and ended on Sunday, they were pretty expensive for me. 
I was not there to make money. I had to find someone to take my clients and I had to find someone to, to watch my son. And any time I wasn't with my son, I had to pay someone to watch him. So in addition to the tuition and travel, I had expenses otherwise as well. So we got talking about putting together a school that would allow doctors to take the lecture material online at home so they wouldn't have to travel as often and wouldn't therefore lose as much money in their practices when they were gone. You all were the first school to do that. Yeah, it was... Um, it was a pretty whirlwind beginning. I mean, we we planned it, we strategized about it, we looked into the different online platforms, we looked to see what would be the most secure, what would offer our students the best, um, ed, the best experience that we could give them, and then. The fun part was that many of the courses, so Dr. O had lectures that were all previously written because he'd been teaching at Parker for so long. Sure. But I didn't have any. I had one written lecture. Yeah. And so we were writing lectures and recording them as fast as we could in order to get them up because... When we opened the school, we had just enough lectures to get started, but we also had something we hadn't expected, and that was registered students right away. Yeah, yeah. So we were writing and, and recording and, and uploading lectures to stay ahead of our students while they were online. I'm sure the technology was a ton different 10 years ago. It was. It was much slower. Yeah. We, because we were still practicing, so we were still on the road a lot, um, it was not unusual that we wouldn't be driving and trying to upload lectures at the same time. And Dr. O would joke about how he'd be watching the, the upload speed and when it would hit something really high, like we'd be near maybe a truck stop or something. He'd be like, stop the car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let this upload. Oh, gosh. So. So what was the format initially as far as the, the amount that was available online versus in person then? Well, we'd always planned that there would be 129 hours online and 111 hours in person, and which actually made it more hours than the other schools were offering in part because we added some philosophy. <coughs> Excuse me. So we had added a couple of extra philosophy courses, which I will admit we had some trouble finding someone who could write those at first. Yeah. And because of that, we read a lot of the green books. We should explain what those are. I will. Okay. 
<laughs> so for those who don't know, so um, B.J. Palmer was a very prolific writer, and he wrote a lot of chiropractic philosophy. And philosophy, I know, is that term seems kind of foreign for a lot of veterinarians um, because we think that science is the essence of everything. But, but, the, but philosophy, and I, I know this because when I, back when I was an English major, I also had a philosophy minor. Philosophy is the logic behind the science. So philosophy really is a lot of the why we think certain things should have a certain sequence, for lack of a better way to put it together. Don't you think that's a critical part? I mean, I, I can't, I'll just say for my own veterinary education, we didn't, it was sincerely lacking. And, and that for me, that was a big part of the shift of, of how life-changing chiropractic was for me was the philosophy part of it. I really think you're right that I know I see once, um, once our students begin to embrace that philosophy then their chiropractic skills take off. Their ability to talk to clients improves. Their ability to understand how many patients they can actually help increases. And their practice just is, you know, there's no stopping them. But they can practice the technique all day long and worry about, the numbers and the angles and the where does my, what part of my body go, all the little details. But until they get the philosophy part, all those little details don't really help them become a really good animal chiropractor. Really almost takes it from the, you know, a tool in the toolbox kind of thing to a, to a healing profession. Absolutely. Yep. How did you how did you structure you you gave us gave me the uh, breakdown of online hours versus in person but how did you structure that in person time so that it would be efficient for doctors to come in Well part of it is all the online material prepares those doctors for all the information they're going to get when they come to lab and we really concentrate during the lab on the hands-on portion. So we it's technique. And so when they come to lab, they get technique lectures. And then they get actual physical animal labs. And we like to think that here at ACES, we have a ratio of animals to people instead of people to animals. It's not unusual for us to bring in somewhere between three and six dogs per student for a weekend. And we always have at least two horses per student for the weekend. Because we want our students to get out of their heads and make it really a, a reflex so that they know once they get that into that setup position, 
they know they're in the right place. So we spend an awful lot of time with our with the animals when they're here. At what point you must? Uh, I assume you were working in the Dallas area at that time when you started the school, and then at what point did you move to your current location? Yes, we were we were working when we first started, and the school has evolved since we first started because of that, because of the difference in place. We were working out of the house north of Dallas, and we were using client horses and client dogs. And and we were still following a little bit of the model of the schools that we had either come from or had been teaching at. So at that point, students weren't allowed to adjust. We still had lots of animals. They were still getting, you know, way more animal contact than we knew they were get, would get anyplace else. When, once we moved to our own ranch in Meridian, Texas, and had our own horses and our own dogs, but we also bring in some client dogs, um, we started letting students actually adjust the animals because we recognized what a huge difference it made when they got to make their first adjustment. Um, that emotional change in them really, I think, helped them to begin to embrace the chiropractic philosophy. And when they got to make an adjustment, and I don't mean just one segment, I mean they got to diagnose the whole animal and adjust the parts that they knew how to do. When they got to see that those animals physically changed, right before their eyes, that made them feel more empowered, feel more confident that they were going to be able to go home and practice this and help or help their patients. I haven't been to the ranch, but I've read the travel brochure and <laughs> I, I want you to be, I want you to take a few minutes and speak about, um, just the ranch and the fact that students can come and opt to stay there and what you do uh, for, for lodging and what you do for nutrition and how you kind of uh, surround the students in a chiropractic environment aside from the teaching. That, that was kind of a, like I don't know that we planned it that way. But that's what we ended up with is that um, when students come to the ranch, they are able to stay here at the ranch with us. It's a 10,000 square foot house. We can house, we have housed up to 16 students on a weekend before students have to go find outside places to stay. And they, they still can come back to the ranch for meals. We, so here at the ranch, before we moved to the ranch, we had already changed our own um, food, how we approached food and thought about it. So we serve a gluten-free, sugar-free meat diet, but we also understand that some people have really specific dietary needs. And... We cater to as many of those as we can because we understand that when you're trying to learn, so I don't want to get too technical here, Neil, but if I do, just stop me. 
Yeah. Um, I, I know that attachment to other people starts in the gut. It starts with infancy when we get the, our first meals from our mom. There's a huge oxytocin dump that comes out of the gut. And when that food is perfect, when it is as close as it possibly can be to what we really need, then our ability to learn improves. But when the food that we are eating is inflammatory and it damages the gut lining and it makes us uncomfortable, even if we are not conscious of it, it makes it difficult to learn. And so putting these students into an immersion environment where they don't have to worry about where they're staying, they don't have to drive between the ranch and someplace else, they don't have to go look for food, and we are out in a pretty rural area. So the choices for food out here are kind of minimal. There's a lot of Mexican restaurants, a, a couple of subways, and a pizza parlor, and mostly really highly inflammatory food. So we didn't plan it this way, but we do find that the students who stay at the ranch versus students who elect to stay off-site have a tendency to do better in class. They are more well-rested. They are, they, they grasp ideas more easily. And especially for our veterinary students, because there's a paradigm shift, there's a point where every veterinary student goes through a change in how they think about the animals. Those students who stay at the ranch seem to get that sooner rather than two years after they've graduated and they've gone home and they've wrestled with it for a while. Thank you for sharing that. That's what I was, I was hoping you'd talk about. Um, before we leave the school um, subject, can you talk about, did you offer online CE from the get-go? You Talk about the, the, uh, the CE that you provide now, and including Basecamp, and um, your after-graduation student support, so to speak. Oh, I'd be happy to. That was one of the other things that we started from the beginning. We recognized that in order to, for students, for, in order for AVCA members to maintain their certification, they had to get a certain number of CE hours every year. And again, we knew that the, the paradigm of, in particular for us, veterinary medicine was not enough time, not enough clients, not enough money to do anything. And so we realized that if we could convince the, C the ABCA to approve online CE, then we would make it so that more animal chiropractors could maintain their certification. They could stay connected, all of those things. They could also learn some new things. So from the very beginning, we started offering continuing education online. And literally, um, 
a big part of it was Dr. O and I speak at the ABCA on a pretty regular basis. So we would take those lectures and convert them into online CE. So those students who needed CE were literally getting the same information they were getting at the ABCA. We reached out to other people that we know in the animal chiropractic arena and offered them, would you like your lectures to be online so other people can enjoy them? And and then they get a little stipend for each student that listens. So we had several other people who contributed to those. And we've got over 400 hours of online CE to help animal chiropractors maintain that certification, both for ABCA and the IVCA has embraced that too. So that's we, great. Um, I hadn't I hadn't known that about IVCA. Yeah, yeah. They actually contacted us last year and said, "We approve all of your CE. So thanks for having it out there." Wonderful. All right, now let's let's take a swing and and talk about your coaching. Tell me about how you got involved in coaching holistic veterinarians. Thank you. So this goes all the way back to the beginning of my practice in South Carolina. If you recall, my practice was really started by clients who just started calling me. I had no rhyme or reason about how I wanted the practice to be. I was just grateful that people were willing to pay me money. And so for the things that I could do for them. And so I realized as I was, as we were teaching these students and they were successful, there's, there's a couple things that went on. Um, we had one student in particular, she's a veterinary surgeon. She's involved with the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And she had been invited to come speak at the AAEP meeting about animal chiropractic, which made her a little nervous in part because in a room of veterinarians, she expected there to be a lot of questions about the research about animal chiropractic. And so she came to us and said, help, I'm going to need some research. I'm going to need some articles that I can back up, back myself up with. I'm going to need all this information. So we compiled what we could for her like some 350 articles. And she went to the meeting. And during that meeting, there we, you know, when there's a breakout session at a veterinary conference for holistic or chiropractic or acupuncture, you kind of expect about 10 people to show up in your room. She had 150 people. Oh, geez. And, and of that group, probably two thirds of them were already certified in animal chiropractic. And their questions were things like, how do you know when to adjust? How do you know how much to charge? How do you know how hard to push? <laughs> and she was bewildered because she had come through our course. She had already adjusted animals in class. And all she could say was, I learned it in school. But what we reflected on was that a lot of these doctors didn't know how to set up a practice. 
So we initially started with some marketing materials. And then I realized that when you start to attract clients, you really need to be in charge of those clients rather than letting them control the conversation. I had already been reading and doing some work with Donald Miller, who um, teaches Business Made Simple. And so I went through some training with his company to learn how to coach business entrepreneurs. And I recognized that even my own practice that started in South Carolina was really and truly created by the, by the clients. And it was essentially run by the clients. And that's one of the reasons that these solo practitioners who are mobile, who work out of their house, get burned out so easily because they're letting their clients run the show. And I think of it like, um, I think of it like, you know, letting the prisoners run the prison a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You really, as, as the owner of a business, you have the responsibility to keep your clients, to teach your clients, number one, to respect you as the business owner, but number two, to see the value in what it is you're providing. And many of us don't have the training to keep the right boundaries uh, to help those people do better. I know there's a, a saying, um, when we have the right structure in place, then we have more freedom to work around it. And when we have the right structure in place with our practice, then it's easier for us to decide who we want to actually be charitable to versus who we feel, you know, is, is we can all be suckers for charity, right? When it comes to animals. Yes. So it helps us to actually be more charitable because we're making an income that allows us to give more of ourselves. Um, and I've recognized that the more I uh, model that kind of structure for my students, the better doctors they will be. If I am not giving them deadlines and timeframes and, and fee structures that fit what helps our business to grow, they will turn around and not use the, that same modeling in their own practice. They will be taking too much time with clients. They will be giving away too much stuff and their businesses won't grow. And they will also get really tired of it. So that's really where coaching came from was that I saw, I mean, it just breaks my heart to hear animal chiropractors say, you know, I can't afford to go on vacation or I can't afford to buy a book that I really want because it's too expensive, those kinds of things. And, and in part because they just, no one stopped to help them grow a practice 
So the other thing that I incorporate in my coaching, in addition to how to be really clear with your clients about what it is you do in your practice so that you attract the right kind of clients, is I walk my my coaching clients through a system called Profit First, which I am no accountant by any means. But Mike Michalowicz wrote a book called Profit First that helps entrepreneurs to, to quit being poor. Um, that's kind of the nutshell. But to help them retain more of their earnings, to help them actually have a profit instead of waiting until they get their taxes back to see how much they actually made that year. Very so. good. I think this is a good place to end it. Amy, thank you so much. That was, uh, it was wonderful to hear your story and to hear about the school. And I just want to take a second and thank you for everything that you and Dr. Ormston have done for our industry, uh, our little corner of the, the veterinary world uh, in education and in service. I really appreciate you um, giving me the time to tell that story and to, to talk to animal chiropractors or talk to doctors, even if they aren't animal chiropractors yet, to let them know how much animal chiropractic can be. Um, us, you know, they want us, they say that it's a new tool in their toolbox, but I want them to think of it as a survival mechanism or a, sometimes you have to be part of your own rescue, right? Yes. And it's a great way to be part of your own rescue from the practice that you maybe didn't create in the first place. Oh, that's perfect. Thank you, Amy. I uh, hope to see you and Bill in person soon. Thanks, Neil. We All hope right. to, too. Bye. You're welcome at the ranch anytime. Oh, I'd love it. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. ZIVT provides world-leading education in natural medicine, including three accredited postgraduate qualifications, industry-recognized certifications, and a wide range of evidence-based courses and webinars delivered by qualified and experienced practitioners. By bridging cutting-edge science and tradition, CIVT helps you to expand your treatment options to tackle your most challenging cases. And whether you're a veterinarian, veterinary technician or nurse, animal health professional, or someone who wants to learn more, they have the right course for you. Investigate their offerings at civtedu.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd take the time to tell a friend and to give us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next time.